Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, Interim Chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. With me today is Dr. Bill Maurice, the President and CEO of Mayo Clinic Laboratories. Hi, Bill. How are you doing this week? I'm doing great. How are you? Excellent, as always. We had a, a really great retreat talking about digital pathology and artificial intelligence just last week, and I thought this would be a really good topic for us to talk about. I was reading the news, and AI is everywhere. Turn on the news, and people are talking about facial recognition, generative AI, large language models, the ability to take speech to text and take notes during your meetings. So I think we should talk about how generative AI and other forms of artificial intelligence impact medicine to begin with. No, I agree. And of course, you probably saw that the kind of one of the biggest news items was the executive order that came mm -hmm. out around AI, right? And that's probably maybe a good place to start because we've talked a lot about it. I guess one of the concerns a lot of us have is how quickly this will move into everyday life and what are some of the safeguards. I think when, when we're thinking about AI, giving a pop-up when we go on to Amazon or Google to predicting what we want to see. That's one thing. But when you think about AI popping up test results or whatever, and so, you know, and making or driving your car, I think it gives people kind of pause. So I think that was what was behind the executive <laughs> order. So, but I, yeah, I know you read it with interest. I did. Absolutely. Let's talk about that. So for those who are listening, who aren't aware on October 30th, President Biden signed an executive order on the safe, secure, and trustworthy development and use of artificial intelligence. And he put forth eight guiding principles. So new standards for AI safety, protecting Americans' privacy, advancing equity and civil rights, standing up for consumers, patients, and students, supporting workers, promoting innovation and competition, advancing American leadership abroad, and ensuring responsible and effective government use of AI. And really, the principles of ethics are really quite important, as with everything we do in medicine, there's some real potential for harm. And Bill, I know you have some examples. One of the things that you and I both know is that, and was public, is that President Biden and the group working on this, they did engage with a lot of thought leaders in AI. You know, there was, I think, some things on the presidential Twitter feed or XP, whatever you call it now, mm -hmm. about what <laughs> out in the Bay Area, meeting with leaders from Google and, and uh, thought leaders from academia out there as well. Uh, I know healthcare organizations, including our own, I think, got to contribute some to this. So this was not something created in isolation. There really was a lot of stakeholder engagement around this. And it's mm -hmm. because there is a real need. There's a real concern. I mean, people think about the something report with Tom Cruise, you know, where AI was like was using to predict crime. And we think about it being intrusive in our life. But the reality is that we just really need to be mindful, even beyond that real ultra futuristic stuff, too, which is really not that futuristic these days. There's been examples we know in, in labs and in diagnostics where algorithms have been introduced and they haven't had the intended consequences or the intended outcome that was hoped for. Sometimes because it's just as simple as understanding pretest probabilities, you and I have talked about. You create an algorithm around a test performance in a diagnostic setting and then start applying that in more of a screening setting where there's the index of suspicion is much lower. This is, I think, a big concern around like cancer and cancer yeah. screening and cancer risk. What will it mean for patients? Things that sound like really big, like a threefold probability you'll develop it. If the probability is super low, you know, 
so those things are out there. And then you, you mentioned digital pathology. It was great. We were at that retreat together. Uh, it, was, mm -hmm. it was always fun to be around you in person and learn from you. But we know from, for instance, uh, certain cancer types, uh, prostate cancer is a, a hot area for looking at AI algorithms that can decrease a pathologist's work. There's a lot of looking around the slide, looking for you know, intraepithelial neoplasia or grading a tumor, et cetera, et cetera. Some of those algorithms actually perform differently on different populations. So, and you don't know that until you actually apply it to different, you know, and that meaning different ethnic groups, right? It really speaks to cancer. It's really multiple diseases, right? For all those reasons, I think that's a really important the executive order that was issued. Yeah, I agree, Bill. And part of the order is calling for HHS to create an AI task force, which will have a strategic plan for deployment of AI algorithms and some sort of assurance policy and safety program for detecting errors in any of these algorithms, especially in healthcare, although that's not specifically called out. But you could see where that would be a big area. You worry about incorrect diagnoses, discrimination, people could be rejected from healthcare programs based on AI determinations. From our standpoint, as being laboratory leaders, we need to think about how we would look at this from an ethical standpoint. What is the ethical use of AI algorithms? And we need to make sure that the population we're using an algorithm in is appropriate for, that the algorithm was developed to be applicable for, the, for our own population. So even though we're not necessarily computer geniuses and we may not understand all the ins and outs of the algorithm, we need to know some basics about how this algorithm was developed. Is it locked down or is it continuing to change? And what was the population it was tested on? Is it appropriate for the patient population we're taking care of? No, all great points. I think that, you know, first of all, the focus on really quality, right, is something that those of us in the diagnostic specialties, laboratory medicine, pathology, radiology, probably more part of our daily practice than in other areas that are more patient facing. So really being, again, being thought leaders for our healthcare organizations about the embedding of quality into some of these things and quality metrics, you know, that's where mm -hmm. people don't, it's more from around like production, if you will, where you think about things like Six Sigma and things that probably aren't routinely thought about in clinical practice, but that we're going to have to really bring forward. The flip side of this is to your point, look, we're not going to really know. They're much different for us then I feel pretty comfortable if someone says they validated a test, that they validated the test in all the use cases that we're asking to do mm -hmm. it. Of course, we have to have the specimen types and everything else. I don't have the expertise. Granted, I'm getting more and more gray, but I don't have the expertise <laughs> to look and say, hey, was that algorithm validated in the population I'm going to apply it to, right? That's where, again, as much as their regulatory oversight can be burdensome, that's the purpose of labeling. It's, it's a, someone that doesn't have the expertise can look and get an assurance, yes. Someone has made sure that this is applicable in this situation. So we think about it much more on the therapeutic side. Over time, we're going to see more and more regulatory oversight on the diagnostic side. It's about striking the right balance, right? Because some of it can right. be owner, but other times it's going to be important. Yeah, I agree. And then the flip side, and then lastly, but you know, you touched on it, but I think it's really important. It's very much woven into the executive order. And that is the concerns around disparities in care both within the United States and globally, right? Is that the real concern is that, and you and I have talked about this, is that as more and more of these tools become available, they're gonna preferentially be accessible probably to more advanced healthcare systems or individuals that are in a healthcare system that has a uniform 
use of an EHR like an EPIC. And so uh, that's going to be in a really important point for all of us to advocate for. And that is really making sure that these are truly available. So it's not your ability to have your healthcare outcome improved by the application of these tools should not be determined by where you live, right? I mean, that's the ideal state. We know the reality is it's going to take time, but it really will have to be within the U.S. and globally something we continue to really pay attention to. Yeah, these tools are so powerful and they'd be so promising, for example, in identifying people that are due for screening for malignancy. But yet, if it's embedded in an EHR that is expensive and requires a full computer system and reliable power and electricity and, uh, and internet connectivity, that's not going to be broadly applicable. So I like yeah. what you said, that we need to continue to advocate for using these powerful tools, probably in creative ways to improve our health globally. Agreed. And I think that's something, you know, we haven't talked about in a while. Of course, I used to be in your role and now I'm in my new role here at Mayo Collaborative Services. But that's really about why I, I'm doing this now is that you have to think about ways that it's just economically sustainable. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that involves both what are the business models so that you can really grow the rationale that companies want to invest in these sorts of things. And then also as Mayo and many other academic medical centers did during the pandemic, thinking about public-private partnerships, right? Understanding what needs to be accomplished and, and collaborating with government agencies and health agencies, both within the U.S. and abroad. And you do a lot of that. And so a lot of that is, again, being just making sure you have a seat at the table for some of those discussions and raise these issues. Well, that's a good point to think about. So yeah. it's good to see the executive order and it'll be interesting to follow that and see what comes out of it. And hopefully it will be safe and effective use of AI algorithms, but in a way that also encourages innovation and widespread use. Yep. Let's hope we can strike the right balance. That's what we're right. really shooting for. And then we'll have to think about who pays for it, you know, because that'll, oh, yeah, that. that. <laughs> so that'll be, it's HHS that has CMS as well. So that'll be the next one. So Always a challenge. no shortage of things for us to talk about just in this domain alone. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Bill. It's always great talking to you and I will see you next week. Sounds good. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday. <laughs>